Please welcome Terry Wolverton. Hey. Um, hi, everybody. Thank you for being here. Thank you for um, coming out to celebrate our 20th anniversary. Um, this is this this makes 20 years that. Um, the Writers at Work Poetry Workshop has been celebrating National Poetry Month at Skylight Books. So today is the last day of National Poetry Month, but it's not too late to hear some poetry and buy some poetry and read some poetry. So, um, you know, Noel's comments are so... Uh, resonate so much with my own heart. Um, Skylight Books has always been here for us, for the writers at, at work, for Los Angeles poets and writers. And um, as I often say, we can't take resources like this for granted. So, you know, I know you all buy books. Buy them here. You know, you can, it's so easy. Do it online. If you don't want to drive over here, do it online. You're here already today. Take some books home with you. You know, because um, it is it is through community support that organizations like this continue to exist. And we want we want to be celebrating our 50th anniversary <laughs> with Skylight Books. Um, all right, our format today uh, is, if you've come to these National Poetry Month readings before, we're doing it a little bit differently today. So our first act, uh, as you are accustomed to, are poets who are participants currently in Poets at Work. And they're going to be reading their latest poems. They're all, they're so they're so adorable because they don't want to read anything that they read before, you know, so they have to write at least enough new material during the year to uh, read at this event. And um, then we're going to uh, have a second act, which will be three poets who have full-length collections of poetry published. And... Um, you know, it's not a little deal to have a whole collection of poetry published. You have to write a lot of poems that you just basically put in the drawer to get the collection, the poems that really are going to live inside that book. So um, we're delighted to celebrate them today as well. So that's fasten your seatbelts. You're in for a ride. And uh, it is my great pleasure to introduce our first poet, Anne Pibel, which she reminds me is pronounced like the, it rhymes with the Bible. So Anne Pibel, please welcome her. There's, there's actually a, a Pibel Bible camp in Nebraska. <laughs> I'm saving that. That's on my bucket list. <laughs> okay. um, I'm just really, really so grateful to um, have become a part of this group, Terry, and to be able to work um, with the poets in this 
particular workshop um, for the last year and a half, and I'm so happy that I have been productive this year because I do have some things to read. Um, thank you very, very much for coming. Um, I'm going to be reading some poems that are part of a collection that I'm working on. And um, I do have, uh, there are some Spanish words in the, in the poems, and I'll, when I get to those, I'll, um, I'll do some translation, a little bit of translation if necessary. So <clears throat> the first poem is Apology. I send you Modigliani paper dolls, supine nudes, love-stamped, what I want to say is trapped inside their long throats, behind almond eyes, words tissue thin, bloodless as an old scar, painful as a lost limb. But there is a pulse in the wrist that reaches off the page, beating its unsteady verse for you to hear with naked fingertips. Um, 21 años, which um, it means age 21, and uh, besos are kisses, and Lima is lime. Besos de Lima, I write in cursive, draw anatomically correct misshapen hearts. For the Bastille Day, Valentine, you will tear open in the milky warm dark. To celebrate a bohemia you are old enough to drink perspires on the bedside table alongside the candle burned down to nothing but smoke ribbons because you are hours and hours late walking through the back door. I know you won't remember this night so I fold our time together into tiny squares to keep with the strand of your damp hair curling like a vine inside my chest. Um, de vestir is to undress. Silk bark of hands, press breasts, crease gabardine, Unclose every hook and eye with precise desire until they find the loosened thread, tear the seam to open skin. Oscuridad, which means darkness, and this one also has the word clavicula, which is collarbone. I am good at finding things in the dark. A wrist, a pulse, the face of your watch ticking our time away. And also what you leave. The word clavicula slipped under the bed. Besos y besos shoved in the back of a drawer. And Lady Day's body and soul on the ceiling looking down. Convection. When you say, imagine, this is the always, I let you fold the small of my back, the ascending vertebra, 
Into a kite, you sail with an economy of wind. It rises only so high before resting in a tree. Cellophane tail tattering after days, shreds to line a nest, finally becoming the never we always had. Last one. Stigmata. Stitched across my clavicle, the only bone in the body that lies horizontally. Blisters. A sign in the flesh this hurt needs to etch its way into my skin. Scar like a braille tattoo, every single word naming a sorrow. Little beads, a prayer to remember you. And it is my pleasure to introduce Yvonne M. Estrada. Thank you, Anne Pybel. Hey, hi. Um, I'm going to change the channel. <laughs> The true creation story and what we know is written on beasts, words tattooed by tapping a sharp stick, dipped in ink from a net full of octopi pulled from the ocean and lugged back to the storyteller's hut, where the wild horses flinch but do not run away from their job. They alone must spread the word of how red starts the fire, of being sky and being blue because the wind can only be felt, of being friends with green and gold, of the age before computers, of being brown, how there are those who will never know of being crushed until there is nothing left but a good way to die. You are what you eat. In conquest, the culturally diverse groups are now simply los indios, dismissed and distilled to bottled hot sauce, ancestors' ghosts inside jalapenos. Remember, consumers, that tamales were protein wraps filled with chiles and beans, food for soldiers fighting in the milpas, guerrilla warfare in your intestines. They want to copyright our holiday, sell us back to ourselves at twice the price, a yearly pass for which we dearly pay. Our little children learn to worship mice. Fucked, fractionalized, diluted forever, mestizos, hybrids are always stronger. And uh, this is for a a man that I see pretty much every day on my way to work. Lily of the I-5. Filthy jacket too hot for summer days. Too thin to keep warm in dry winter cold. Swollen feet, shins oozing, bandage wrapped legs. He shuffles up to the rolled down window. We give a dollar. Receive our blessing. Freeway exit saint making us holy. 
on our way to work, tardy and stressing, makes us wonder about why we worry about clothes and consider wildflowers that grow beside broken bottle glitter. He neither labors nor spins, yet showers us with God's grace from his dusty gutter. Our morning commute. Our morning commutes now a pilgrimage, our dollars ready to provide homage. And now I'm going to change the channel again. <laughs> this is a poem I wrote for Kim Dower's party in West Hollywood a while back, and it had to do with I had to write something about 1967 because that's what she told me to do. And the title of this poem is What I Remember About the Sunset Strip Circa 1967. What is now Cesar E. Chavez Avenue used to be Brooklyn Avenue. Where I come from, Brooklyn turns into sunset, is all I remember about sunset from those days. When going to a Dodger game or maybe the Cinerama Dome via the streets. What else I remember is the music, it was everywhere. Going to swimming lessons on a school bus, Jefferson Airplane on the cool driver's scratchy transistor, go ask Alice. I think she'll know. The parking lot playground echoing keyboard riffs of light my fire at recess. I don't forget Rachel Segala, my third grade teacher, said I didn't write that Halloween poem by myself, gave me a D minus. My mom's younger brothers let me read the liner notes and lyrics of Sgt. Pepper's, the flash of warning in my father's eyes as I get high with a little help from my friends. Those same uncles were drafted into the war. We sent them tortillas and homemade oatmeal chocolate chip cookies in MJB coffee cans. One uncle came back dazed and addicted. The other so skinny like a calaca. Neither of them cut their hair for 10 years after that. My subculture role models with their black light posters, album covers, and pot plants behind the Meyer lemon bush. I defended their long hair once. I said, well, Jesus had long hair. To which my father said, it was the style then. To which I stupidly answered, so it's the style now. Which got my badass little Sony transistor confiscated. (laughs) Still, I was too young to be a real hippie. But my uncles let me go with them in their Camaros and GTOs. And I heard the Doors lyrics pulverized. To spiders on the floor. (laughs) Yeah, and got turned on to Neil Young, gone solo, after he had left the Buffalo Springfield. Thank you. And now to the uh, fresh off the press, Helen Yeoman Shaw. Hello. Yes, I'm now a, a hyphenated woman. I um, always assumed that I would just naturally um, drop my maiden name and take my husband's name when I got married. And then when I started sounding it out, of course, as most writers and poets do, right, I decided Helen Yeoman Shaw sounded very literary, so I would stick with that. That is really behind it. My dad was a bit disappointed because my middle name is Marie, and so he wanted my new initials to be HMS, like a ship. Yeah, so (laughs) I think I made the right decision. Anyway, um, 
I came to know Writers at Work six years ago at this very event and um, enrolled immediately upon meeting Terry and, and my fellow poets. And um, every year I have felt that I've grown, con- I've grown continuously. Um, but this last year in particular, I feel like I took some bigger strides. And um, so I'm very pleased to be presenting three poems today that have all been written within the last year. Um, The first one uses the word monomania, which is a word that I actually discovered in the writing of the poem. Um, And it means mental illness, especially when limited in expression to one idea or area of thought, or another definition, excessive concentration on a single object or idea. So when we come upon that word, you'll know what I'm talking about if you don't already. All right. This is called The Mortality of Teeth. I'm fixated on the bust by the columns, marble curls tight against his head, solid folds that never blow in the breeze draped across his shoulders, white eyes wide open, look haunted as he's subjected to the actors reciting Edgar Allan Poe by candlelight and to the horrors that were inflicted upon Bernice. His face, angled toward the performance, cannot turn away from the narrator's misery. His eyes cannot close when the box bursts open, scattering the tiny ivory fragments in his direction. He and I both suffer from the narrator's monomania. Powerless, I study his unchanging reaction while he stares at the madness unfolding on stage. Why is immortalization so cruel? Suddenly, I'm grateful to be common. I don't want to be great if someday a sculptor is going to carve my head as though I've been decapitated, place it on a pedestal, my face cast in plaster, frozen in fear. I don't want to be amused to some wretched poet who will bury me alive like poor Bernice. For how many years has this once important man been forced into this corner? I wonder if his neck has a crick, if he wishes he could look the other way for the next century, if he misses laughing, how his smile might remold the shape of his face, how robust he'd seem, how he must long for Bernice's broken, stolen teeth. Uh, My next poem was originally written as a response poem to one of Yvonne's poems that I found on our our website. Um, So initially, I, I kind of went with her direction and had it be about two lovers. But through numerous revisions, I realized that what my version of the poem needed to be was more of a mother and child relationship. Um, So that is what it now is. When I leave, when I leave, I will leave the moon with you. She will be your nightlight, pushing darkness away. 
so you may sink safely into slumber. She will be your keeper of time. You may count the days through her opening and closing eye, your grief gradually waning. She will be your shield, deflecting the sun's blazing revelations, softening his sharp glare so you may gaze into the heavens unblinded. She will be your balloon, her beam a silken string. Whenever you ache, reach high, and she will lift you up to me. And then my final poem, I traditionally like to end on a haiku. Um, For those of you who are familiar with the form, um, then you know a haiku is basically a three-line poem with five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. It's an ancient Japanese form. And while most haikus do not contain a title, I felt when I read this one that it demanded to be named. So I named her Persephone. Each spring, I bring my mom daffodils, embrace her, palms spilling sunlight. Thank you. Thank you. And it is my honor to introduce the next poet, Dylan Gailey. Thank you. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Um, so Skylight and Writers at Work growing up together, that's it's a beautiful image. I must give credit to Writers at Work and especially to Terry for um, rebirthing me, actually. Um, so you got me really from scratch. Anyway, um, today I will be reading excerpts from a a larger work titled Kinds of Lonely. It began as one poem and it just took on a life of its own. And the poem explores aspects of loneliness and of being lonely. It takes on shapes and forms of personas, draws from the senses. Sometimes they are abstract and sometimes they're just plain absurd. The characters in this all are voices that live in the town of soliloquy. There's that kind of loneliness that startles the fright right out of you when you realize that only your eyes heard the scream. There's the lonely who captures moments belonging to others. The lonely kidnap. They do not make a call, do not write a ransom note. They make no demands at all. Lonely accepts the deafening silence that precedes dawn as it crosses its five stations of the horizon, then falls like the sun. There are the lonely who will open wide their peepholeless doors at any hour, day or night. There are the lonely who will never, ever take a backseat to anyone. There are the lonely who will never, ever hear their names whispered again. There are the kinds of lonely who practice forging their own signature. To raise lonelies like any child, you'll always have a favorite. Loneliness settles for less, settles down, settles on sleeping pills and cremation. 
There's the kind of lonely that gathers dust, sprinkles it on furniture like a poltergeist, writes notes that no one will ever read. The lonely will eat its young to be in, or- in order to be with you, just you. There are the lonely who hurry home so they won't miss the dinner time solicitation calls. Lonely's soliloquy begins to be and not to be. There's the kind of lonely who is mistaken as condescending when this lonely really just wants to show you that they know a thing or two. They want you to be proud of them. They want to hear you say what a smart and clever lonely you are. There's the lonely that draws its lips close to yours, the kind that will kiss and tell, the kind of lonely that lies, tells you it's pregnant. There's the kind of lonely that still comes in glass, not plastic. There's lonely like a quilt that's handed down one generation after another. There's the kind of lonely who'll chew its face off rather than amputate its ego. Once upon a time, there was a lonely who closed her heart to a world set on disappointment. There's the lonely who will gulp down the joys of others, belch, then ask you to pardon them. There's the kind of lonely that insists on the name clinical depression. Others prefer melancholy, or mel for short. Collie, not so much. A bit doggish and a bit too Irish. Loneliness isn't the new anything. There's a kind of lonely that panics, forgets to tell you to breathe. Lonely sharpens its teeth on the bones of sorrow. Each evening, Sister Mary Catherine stops by to pick the lonely, lost soul crackhead up off the floor, removes his pipe from his blistered lips. The same lonely, lost soul crackhead who insisted that that he knew Sister Mary Catherine better than she knew herself. The one who interrupted each time she began to pray. The one who would never shut up. This is the lonely fuck a soul mother crocker crack head who told sister you were predictable, lack spontaneity in your spineless. This is the same lonely found one morning with a bullet hole between his eyes. There's the kind of lonely that bathes over you, finds those hard to reach places. Loneliness sounds like a kettle drum without skin. Actually, it is loneliness that is the oldest profession. Loneliness invented invisible ink. Lonely as paper, white as the dusting of fresh snow and older than dirt. The lonely give, forgive the limited forgiveness of faith. The lonely don't care how they're found, they just step off the stool. There's the kind of lonely who believe everything is true in order to believe in something. There are the lonely who, inside, hold their disappointments with grace, honor, and an essence of quiet beauty. Thank you. It's now my pleasure and honor to introduce our next poet, Brett Guitar Hofer.
Thank you, Dylan. There's a thread among the poems I brought today, and the thread is Japan. The first poem is called Kites. I only know them as ghosts who live inside the border of a black and white photograph with my father, whose own image as a boy is a ghost playing beside them. They were his best friends. Their father, an immigrant from Japan, came to work as a grafter for my grandfather on his ranch. They lived in a wooden house at the base of the windbreak where their mother, who spoke no English, dried fish and pickled vegetables, cooked rice over an open flame. I used to play in the empty house where they lived before it was torn down and buried in the ground. Broken windows and inches of silt from the Santa Anas covering the floor. I wasn't allowed to go in alone, but I did because I liked playing with ghosts and I was lonely. On summer nights, my father would sit on their screened-in porch, listening as they read stories out loud in Japanese, wind passing through the eucalyptus trees. This is when there was no sound other than silence in the world. This was before they were taken to Manzanar, before their skin became illegal and their eyes too sharp to trust. When my father and I flew kites, he would tell me the story of the box kite that his friend's father built, how it was so strong that it picked him up off the ground and he was suspended above the earth like a bird unable to come down. This is called the seventh day. Rain blurred the view from the taxi window as we rode to the art museum to see Yoko Ono's show. The driver ignored us in the back seat. It's possible he was only being polite, not really ignoring us at all, but with the Japanese it can be hard to tell. On a table the length of a gallery, a hundred red bowls were filled with water. Each one had a name tag beside it. Georgia O'Keeffe was next to George Bush. Charles Manson was near the Pope. The title was, We're All Water. Smart and true, I thought. Sad how people never realized Yoko was so much more interesting than John. I never liked the Beatles much. John was lucky he met Yoko, even though most people think it was the other way around. Even in Tokyo, Sundays are tiring. No matter where you spend them. Makes sense, I guess. It was, after all, the day God rested 
after creating the world. My next poem is about the Japanese haiku master Basho, who died in Japan on November 28, 1694. Reading Basho at 4.30 in the morning. It is finally silent. The homeless man whose argument with the night interrupted my dreaming has given up. Rattle of empty bottles rolling from side to side in the ribcage of his shopping cart, silenced after he finally moved on from beneath my window. It's just you and I now, Basho. What luxury to be quietly alone as the fading rays of the blooming moon drift across the equator of my bed reading haikus written by hand in the shadow of lantern light from your hut shaded by banana trees 150,000 evenings ago. The next poem is called Yuri, and a Yuri is a Japanese ghost. This poem is about Richard Brodigan and it opens with a quote from him. All those who live after we are dead, we knew this moment. We were here, Tokyo, June 1st, 1976, 12.01 a.m. In Tokyo, crows in their spare language of warning narrated our walk slowly along the river as the fall afternoon, like you and I, wandered into dusk. Stepping into a bookstore, I heard the sounds of coffee being made as my eyes adjusted to the light. On a table among a sea of other books, I found a collection of your poems translated into Japanese. Cascading words fell down the page like vines of wisteria or the dark strands of a woman's hair you might have met the night before and had too much to drink with. Upon finding her hair the next morning left behind in your sheets, you might write about her, still wishing she were there, how her hair, like a ghost, would haunt you forever. The title of my last poem is Yoshino, and Yoshino is a type of cherry tree in Japan that blossoms only white flowers rather than pink. I watched spring in Japan coax green from the throats of sinewy bear trees, dark architecture. White cherry blossoms, so delicate in their beauty, they appeared to be carved from melting snow. Standing at the window, I thought of you, my dear white dead dog, as petals taken by the wind scattered and blew away. Thank you very much. It's with pleasure and great appreciation that I would like to introduce Terry Wolverton.
I have been uh, doing a project this year uh, that I call Disarticulations, and every month I collaborate with a different Los Angeles poet. And part of how the Disarticulations project works is that um, the poet and I exchange, the, the, the collaborator and I exchange words. So I'm left to choose from a, among words that someone else has provided, and they have to choose from words that I've provided. Um, and you don't have to use every word, but you can't add any words. So I'm going to read three poems that I've written as part of that process. And it's uh, clear to me as I read them back um, over the last several months that, um, like many of us, I am deeply disturbed about what's going on in the world. And you'll see that reflected in various ways in the poems. Um, the first poem, uh, the, the words were given to me by the poet Armine Ichnodosian. And it's called, Because Our Tongues Are Shaking. No witness to the girl dripping blood onto her favorite dress. No petals for her birthday. No sugar. No witness to the sissies crying in the alley. Their checkups afford no rescue. No witness to rebels hallucinating a fountain, sweet water thrilling their hair. No witness to the hungry larks on their final twirl in the wild orange air. No witness to the cool hands of the rattlesnake man because everybody kills. No witness to sad parents spilling cocktails into their shadows at breakfast. No witness to the sad queen tasting the bitter tea of remorse. No witness to the lantern as it dies of thirst to the river that swallows its tail. This uh, second poem uh, has words that were given to me by the poet Art Karim. And he gave me so many words. I couldn't even believe how many words he gave me, which does not make it easier, believe it or not. Um, but I ended up being very happy uh, to have these words. Uh, and this poem, I think, is inspired by the refugee crisis in so many parts of our world. Vessel of Risk. Another burning morning when she wakes a stranger to herself. Some cheap first world scent collected in her hair. Victim of the ancient game of bliss. Her damage, no one's business. Even she no longer curious. It's part of her DNA. Lost at the airport, baggage unclaimed, one more in a chain of infectious blankets surrendered by the side of the highway. 
What is her name today? What is her root? Which world has shat her out of its churches, schools, its gangs of mud-caked children that dream her dark remains? Her blood pounds, eyes trained on the elephants walking west. She's learned to keep climbing, crisscross the green road, worm her way into the prayers of women so unlike her, they look for signs of lost luck in the sky. Their regrets stick to her hands. Does she even stand a chance? What baby self shucked its careful shell, looted the rules of privacy, dared the sun to reveal fresh evidence of hope, swirling like milk into coffee, curling through her idle brain, some thought of more that drives her down this swerving path to pooled water, where she feels the same as tortoise or tree, belonging to land, belonging somewhere, after all. And my third poem has words that were given to me by the poet Ashaki M. Jackson. And it so happened that she uh, gave me these words the week that the United States uh, fired the mother of all bombs uh, into Afghanistan. This poem is called Knife and Spoon. Give it to me now, that mother of all bikini-clad bombs. Roll me in the theater of need. Harden when I sweeten, when my purse empties. Feed my push and pull. Take comfort in the slow glow. Make me yell democracy when skin begins to burn. Where did you learn that? Bomb in my womb like a star singing. Boom will be the soundtrack to all American stories from now on. Do you think I can wake up? The milk is on the ground. The only safety is in the dim sleep after daylight. Children dress in pelts, women in flags. We're shagged one piece at a time. Blood in my throat, no frog sounds in the blue air. I never had a vagina, only a secret recipe. Make me cry for patriarchy. Make me a cake of sacrifice. We can't consider what we don't remember. There's an outage of outrage. Eternity's hard won and smells of light. Gather the bones now. Smother seeds in the soft ground. Thank you. Okay, Act Two it is. And I um, am so happy to 
uh, have the honor of introducing our next poet. Um, I met Kim Dower um, many years ago, and and we had a, a dinner, one of those dinners where you just are getting to know somebody and you just like spill everything. And she told me that she had written poems as, as a younger person and that she just always had this fantasy that she was going to go back to writing poems. And a couple of years later, she came to Writers at Work and now she's the author of three full-length books of poetry. She's a mad woman. She just can't stop writing poems. And um, I'm just so delighted to welcome her now to the microphone, Kim Dower. I didn't spill everything. Um, I'm so happy to be back in the arms of writers at work. I miss you guys. And um, it's funny, but Bible's Bible's on my bucket list too, actually. I can't wait to go there. But uh, I'm so happy to hear more lonely. And all. I was in this group for eight years. And Terry threw me out. She said, enough, get out. No, she didn't. It's, it's a joke. I'm, I'm the funny one, actually. Um, so, but I, I wrote, most of the poems in these books came out of that class. So it's very exciting, and I highly recommend it. Uh, so, whoops, there. I happen to be the poet laureate of West Hollywood. That is kind of crazy, right? So as the poet laureate, the first thing that I was asked to do was to write a poem for West Hollywood. And I thought, you know what? I'm over this whole thing. I can't, I can't, I can't do this. Um, I'd never been told to write a poem for something, so I was a little nervous about it. Uh, but I wrote it. And I'm going to read it to you guys. And I'm going to read it because the only other time I read it aloud was at the uh, West Hollywood City Council meeting when I was inaugurated or initiated or whatever they did to me. <laughs> they, they inoculated me. <laughs> they tattooed me, actually. Um, but I read it like this with my back to the audience because I had to face the city council, the, the mayor and everyone, and no one said, well, Kim, you'll have to turn your back to the audience. So that was a little horrifying, um, but I had a really cool thing on the back of my jacket. So I said, you can all look at the back of my jacket, but I wanted to take this opportunity to read it facing an audience. So this is my poem that I wrote to uh, for West Hollywood. It's called Oh to West Hollywood. Anybody ever gone to West Hollywood? <laughs> La Brea, pumped and loaded, stretches its arms across Route 66, its fingertips reaching into Beverly Hills. 
because the Italian cypress trees poke holes into the sky and the flags are waving eight miles high in the Hollywood Hills. A man steps onto his balcony, looks out at a galaxy of lights, jewels scattered like smiles on fire. Ode to West Hollywood because the boys on Santa Monica kiss with their mouths open, walk arm in arm, wave at passing cars, make us all feel alive because the crosswalks may kill us yet. Because even when it sleeps, the blue whale is watching. Because we eat at Barney's Beanery, because it's there. It's where Jim Morrison's throw-up graces the bar. Because the whiskey is always the whiskey, the Roxy still rocks. Sunset Strip doesn't care if we live or die. Book Soup gives us a place to hide. The tattooed goddesses slow grind inside the palms where bougainvillea blooms into a fuchsia blaze without asking questions. And the gas lamps line the streets whispering our names so all us misfits can finally feel sane because grandmothers at Plummer Park remind us of our own, remind us of what we miss back home because the city is young but has lived many lives because every single day someone tells us we have the best burgers in town because my mother thought the firemen were hot because at dawn everything can be forgot high in the Hollywood Hills a man embraces our city his arms stretched pumped, loaded the lights below a feast of life dissolving the night and when he awakens he hasn't a clue why there are rose petals in his pocket. That was so much fun to write that, actually. So, um, thank you. I still feel, after I write a poem, where's Terry's class? <laughs> I need... I used to, I'll just say that, you you send your poems around and everyone writes on them. And, um, and there was a special bonus because Yvonne would draw a picture on it. And I have saved all the poems with Yvonne's pictures, with your pictures. But then I would go home and put them all over the dining room table and look at everyone's notes. And you start to mold it because a poem is something that's built. You know, it's, it takes time, sometimes months. But um, I miss all those notes, so I, I kind of talk to myself after. And I always think, oh, well, Brett would say this, and Yvonne would say this, and Dylan would say that. I can hear sort of the voices in my head. That's very helpful. I'm also partially schizophrenic, so that's, um, anyway, a little schizophrenic joke. So... Here's a sadder poem. But um, these are not from my books. These are new poems. I felt like reading some new poems. This is a poem I dedicate to a great poet, great friend, great teacher, um, whose name is Thomas Lux, who recently um, left the world to go to a better world of poets, angel poets. The poem's called, He Said I Wrote About Death, And I didn't mean to. This was not my intent. I meant to say how I loved the birds, how watching them lift off the branches, hearing their song, helps me get through the gray morning. 
When I wrote about how they crash into the small, dark places that only birds can fit through, layers of night sky, pipes through drains, how I've seen them splayed across gutters, piles of feathers stuck together by dried blood, how once my car ran over a sparrow, though I swerved, the road was narrow, the bird was not quick enough, dragged it under my tire as I drove to forget, bird disappearing part by part, beak, slender feet, fretful, hot. I did not mean to write about death, but rather how when someone dies, we remember who we love, who we love, and we die a little too, we who are still breathing, we who still have the energy to survive. So that's for you, Tom. So I will read um, a couple of short ones from, from my book, Last Train to the Missing Planet. So when I read, um, I always have to bring all my books together so that they don't feel left out. Like, why didn't you bring me up to the podium? So um, they do talk to me. And these books are the only ones I ever read from. So this book is has all my little notes in it. And anyway, it's just a little thing I'm telling you that nobody cares about, but I'm just sort of <laughs> nervous suddenly. Um, I want to see you glow, he tells me. So I rub pet products over my body. Oil to make a dog's coat glossy. The hair on my arms is sparse, but I run fast and have an appetite like a wine moraner. I want to feel as good to the touch as a dog after a day in a dog spa, as energetic, intelligent, alert, steady. This human life is not right anymore. Look around. Join me for a chew treat and a dish of water. <laughs> I was in a reading recently, and I said, how many eat dog food? And I want to tell you how many hands went up. This is horrifying. How many eat dog food? Costume. So this is a poem that you wrote on. I made a lot of notes on this way back when. And you really liked this poem? But in our class, well, I shouldn't say in my old class that I went to, we don't say what we like or what we don't like. We say, what would happen if, and then you know, like, that sucks, whatever they're going to ask, whatever they're going to say. So it's like, well, I mean, it does. That's the truth. Okay, don't look at me. So Terry wrote in, on this poem, what would happen if you ended the poem here? And there were like 20 lines after that. <laughs> But I did. I ended it there, where she said to end it. And it's called Costume. I'm dressed as half swan, half cow. My elegant, lethal wings grace a huge side cut of black and white. Long ballet neck jutting out of my thick, sacred shoulder. Delicate swan self meshed into the cumbersome world of meat. 
Not sure about my feet, hoofed or webbed, if I should go tricking or treating, knocking on doors will only confuse people. What does a swan have to do with a cow? My friend's daughter asks me. She doesn't understand. Feathers and bristle, lightness and bulk. I want to be in both worlds. Meander like a drunk leftover, worshipped by angels. Plod through grass, command the lake, be be admired for both parts of who I am. And this poem is called Lipstick Reading. I'll just read the poem. I won't give a little story. Lipstick Reading. I had my lipstick read at a cocktail party. Had to apply, then kiss a glossy index card as if it was the love of my life. I kissed the slick paper open-mouthed, the imprint of my lips like a song. My lipstick color is heroin, purple with an undercurrent of blush, a hue that shows no remorse. Even the reader is fooled, thinks I'm an impulsive romantic willing to fly to Paris on a whim. You'll try anything, he told me, because your lips are parted. Yet, the corners are joined together, a circle of friends holding hands, white sky in the middle, a hole for me to disappear into. Just tell me, I ask, tell me about the crease on my upper lip. Read it. Explain why it's always been there, a trail leading nowhere. And thank you. So I'm, I'm going to do something really nervy. But because it's your class, I'm going to pretend I'm in class today. Only no feedback, please. And, and I'm going to end with a poem I wrote this morning. And, you know, sometimes the poems, they follow you. Like they're ready to be written and you don't even know about them. And then they like ambush you. Or it's like, write me, write me. And I was in the garden. I, I was not going to be writing a poem where I didn't think about it. And suddenly I got hit with something and I ran to my computer and I wrote this. So honestly, look, I'm already starting to rewrite it. <laughs> it's really kind of gutsy to read this. But I'm going to end with a poem I wrote today. You can send me any feedback, Terry. I'm very happy to get it. It's called Thirst. My father never saw my house, though without his modest savings, we never could have bought it. My father didn't know his grandson past the age of 10, but today at 28, my boy has his eyes and many of his talents. My father died thirsty. We couldn't fill his needs. No one could. He had a big personality, my mother would say. Sucked the air out of a room. Needed you to pay attention to his every word. A wall of talk we wanted to jump over. My father could tell a good joke. Do the accents, had the timing. Why wasn't that appreciated? 
He could sell anything, untangle a knot out of the most delicate chain. His stuff looked nice, his paintings framed. He'd serve pats of butter on a dish, restaurant style. Our people leave us, and we let them go. We let them fade into the tapestry of the dead, an occasional memory slapping us in the face, tapping us on the shoulder, kissing the breeze by our cheek. We wait for the wind to blow these reminders like it did for me today, just now, in my garden, that he never saw, but would have loved, even though my roses are struggling, their white petals dropping, so thirsty they are, so ready for a drink. Thank you. Oh, yikes. Well, I am delighted to introduce my fellow alumni. Um, someone I loved being in class with who went on to write an incredible book of poems. My friend, Sharon Venicia. Thank you, Kim. Kim Dower is a really hard act to follow. She's the funny one. I'm the serious, dark one. But I'm the poet laureate of my apartment complex. Nobody knows this but me. But it's working out really well. Um, I am thrilled to be reading with Writers at Work again, and this group really sustained my writing for many years, and um, without Terry's uh, mentorship and everyone in the group, I don't think uh, I'd have, my book wouldn't be in the world, I don't think. Um, so I'm um, in, in great debt to her. I don't have a lot of new writing, but we're showcasing our books anyway, so uh, I'll be reading two poems that are not in the book and uh, four that are. My poems are short, so don't panic. Uh, so this first one, I've been, uh, I started kayaking about a year ago, and uh, this poem has come out of that experience. It's called Drift. This is where we part. This is where I go when I want things to be quiet. The kind of distance only the sea understands as it empties into the sky. Past the breakwater, paddling into the endlessness, the elsewhere, a blue drift of a bird. As a girl, I'd hold myself underwater until my body with gasp and flail fought back. It felt good knowing my body wanted to live. 230,000 species in the ocean, so close I can feel their breathing, like an ecosystem in my bones. Out here, it's so empty, there's nowhere to disappear. This next poem is from, um, we were just figuring out how to pronounce this, uh, Aeolian, I believe, Aeolian uh, Harp series. This is a local anthology that just came out. And it's neat. Each author in here has about six or seven poems, so it's really a nice showcasing. And um, I'll read one from here, which is called Returning Number Two. 
Returning number one is in here. <laughs> um, I won't be reading that one, though. <clears throat> when my mother flew from the nest, everything was an empty mouth. My stomach, nothing but wind and sky. My teenage body, like driftwood, washed ashore into the arms of men. I wanted them holy, wanted them distant, wanted them floating on the shoreline like a black box detailing the scenes of my disaster. For years, it was my job to pour alcohol into the empty cups of men. I watched cobwebs gather in their hair. Now I watch for a flame of wings in the backyard of my childhood home. Remember the place I dreamed away from, the empty glass I held out to the world. A woman in the kitchen is sowing grief into an empty mouth with a certainty only the body knows. The way a swallow builds its nest of saliva and mud, a genetic map flapping in the brain. This house is not a map. It is the shadow of a girl who woke up with the world opening inside her like an unnameable star. The endangered world spinning on its axis, listening for the flap, flap, flap of leaving. This house is made of tripwire. Here, let me show you. So that poem mentioned a mother. I'm going to read one more that's about a mother. Maybe my mother, maybe your mother, all mothers. It's called mother. <laughs> Every poem about a mother is its own sorrow, its own white iris looking out at the world. Ted's geese resting in the pond, peonies burning circles in the sky. Mary's mother is blue wisteria. A mossy stream behind her house brings order to the world. She tells us to live with the beetle and the wind, to let life untidy us. My mother didn't like to be in nature, but she took great care of her plants, knew their language, smoothed the dark veins of their leaves. Her poem will not contain flowers, no wisteria, no iris delivered from the house of the dead. I'll call it poem with its head in its hands, and there will be an artichoke, its thirsty shape urging us to embrace its layered heart. Her husband will call it, be the flame, renew my thirst. Her son will call it, the darkness is not here to stay. So changing channels a little bit. Um, this poem is um, about uh, the photographer Francesca Woodman. And uh, her, her work 
she uses it's a lot of black and white work she uses herself as subject or object um, and explores identity and through boundaries between tangible and intangible and, and uh, the self the body and, and object um, and she committed suicide at a very young age by jumping out of a window and I tell you this because it's part of the poem untitled where do you end and the world begin you want to be wind vapor half flower half vase wallpaper tree bark door you become line shape you invisible the self we raise our eyelids to your frame in this one, your nakedness crawls towards a white kala. You bend into our looking, watch us shift in our seat as the lens eats you. You are a brief installation of curved bone and wall. Jumping from a window, you are both sidewalk and falling. Did you think the camera would catch you? And these last two poems are, uh, they're after uh, Nick Flynn and his process of taking a lot of the testimony from Abu Ghraib detainees and doing kind of a re redacted uh, cut-up type process with that. Mostly in his, his book, uh, The Captain Asks for a Show of Hands. And... Um, this so it's sort of about um, waterboarding and a lot of the the images that were coming out of Abu Ghraib and uh, um, it was written when uh, Osama bin Laden was killed. Water asks a question. In the streets, they're dancing for the dead. I mean, the killing. They're killing for the dead. But there will still be water and throat and hose, dead eyes and photographs to shame the living. We arrive, sandbags over our head, beat naked, kneel and squat and click and click. O oh sky, O oh chain, O oh clothes beat broken. Hang me to the door, open my mouth to not speak. Abu Ghraib. 3 a.m. Soldier. My bedroom, my children, my head. My hands heard screaming. Next, a cage, a tent. One month and just before sunset. Flooded with water and waste. Cut our hearts under his tongue, body away. Lost hearing, lost consciousness, lost mind. Sometimes spark, sometimes spread, sometimes click, sometimes water, sometimes drown. They said pose, they said smile, they said sing. Rope wrist, rope pipe, rope hours. Do you, did you, do you recognize this fist? Thank you. On that note.
I am pleased to introduce Eric Howard, who um, who has a new book out. He's our, our latest um, to publish a full collection, and um, I'm very proud of him. We're all very proud of him, and I'm excited. This is my first time hearing him read from it, so I'm very excited. Welcome, Eric Howard. Thank you very much, Sharon. Is what here? Yeah, it's here. It's right there. So, um, forgive me. All right. Um, thank you very much, Sharon. And um, I'd also like to thank um, Terry. Without her uh, workshop, this book would not have come into existence, so I owe it to her. And I'd also like to thank um, Skylight for hosting us. And yes, I'm the weird one. <laughs> so, oh, all right. Well, we can talk about that later. But um, what I'd like to do is uh, read some poems um, in which the title is speaking or the title is being spoken to. So um, most of them are one or the other. And uh, I'd like to start with. Um, one in which the title is the speaker. It's called Clock. After I fell asleep, trees sprung and flared and fell. My hands trembled as I dreamed that an empire stormed across the mantelpiece and silence overcame the school. The Milky Way unwound. Insurance men in raincoats poured out across the city with plans spiral-bound in black briefcases until downtown marched behind cranes to the bending river. Grown old, grandkids sat on porches and took up the lap steel guitar or shuffled 12 old pinup girls, seconds of pie waiting on plates while watching grandchildren at play outside, their faces blurring over mine one spring afternoon that seemed to last forever. All right. And the next one... Um, it's the title talking again. It's a translation of a famous poem that, you know, on a dark night, or it was Era Una Noche Escura. Um, he wrote this many years ago, St. John of the Cross, a Spanish mystic poet, and the title is St. John. On a dark night, happy, burning with want, I went unnoticed from my quiet house in shadow, took the back stairs without stopping, disguised that moonless night in secret and without light, no guide but my desire, I walked as sure as noon to where he waited to know me well where no one saw. Night that guided me, I thank you. Night that united lover and beloved, beloved and love, night more lovable than dawn, you taught, you taught my heart to grow flowers for him alone as he lay sleeping, and I touched his hair beneath the fanning cedar. He reached so calmly for my neck and wounded me there, I hardly felt myself stop breathing. But I stayed, and I forgot myself. I rested my face on him and let everything go, every worry to the grass, all harm forgotten. All right. Um, yeah, here's another one in which uh, the title is speaking. 
and it's from the tarot deck. It's uh, the Empress. And the Rider Waite deck, um, you know, she looks kind of like a hippie. She's got this long flowing dress and kind of earth mothery. So um, I took some, you know, looked up some old stories and whatnot, put this together. It's um, the Empress. My mother chrysalis and sell and hide my voice and fortune teller gibberish. I wove into acid that sings when I need new silver fish to warm penguin bellies. I hear silkworms chewing mulberry leaves and teach the garden wasps to roll to me the pomegranates that I like to eat while my kittens sleep in sunlight. I seed the forests, color cuttlefish and beetles. In my womb breathe the seeds of all monsters. Disobey my moons and time may come they shrivel you. Rob me and I'll come for you. Blanketed in bats, I'll cross hell barefoot to trouble your door. Open it or I will smash its frame and take back what you stole. Grind your bones from my tomatoes and forget your name. Come, ask your question, child. Some tea? Talk to me. I know your mother. <laughs> All right. Um, the next one goes back to my teaching days. And um, in this case, uh, the, the title is being spoken to. It's called Apostrophe. Why shouldn't I love you? You're a spit girl, a hat that cants where you stand without a wearer, or you're a raised club of absence or possession, a mixed message like a Pope's Torah. Sybil and Speck, don't be apropos. Play those P's and Q's. Help me earn by being hard to learn. All right. Um, this one is another one where the title is being spoken to. And it also goes back to my teaching days, which uh, I got this memory that came back to me when uh, not long ago I was in a high school cafeteria at 8.30 in the morning and not enjoying the fact that it was 8.30 in the morning. And um, I had my cup of coffee and I did not want to be bothered until I had finished my cup of coffee. Um, maybe some of you can relate, maybe not, I don't know. But um, that's where I was when, um, you know, this, this older person in, in a high school cafeteria it's called um, to PTSD. I scare a kid by sitting at her table, and I hear you when I think at her. Get out, you high school cafeteria geek. She leaves because I look like some old weirdo beware movie freak who just wants coffee now, just like I wanted coffee then, and to be alone when a different kid, some high school geek, waited a week of mornings outside my door when I was a teacher before he curled his knuckle and made his blood knock. Your friends, those green and yellow pills, wiped years of yellow topic sentences off the green board and turned the yearbooks gray, but failed to unbang his gun or roll his eyes back down. So I can only praise you, surly boy brushing backpack past me now, you impossible high school geek. As my hands cut my coffee in a concentric shudder, Praise how you taught me why I must and why I can't. Stand on this table and tell them all, I love you, you beautiful high school geeks. All right. Oh, um, I almost forgot. I have pictures. Um, since a lot of uh, 
proper nouns come up in this poem, which is the title poem of the book, Taliban Beach Party. Um, I'd like to show some pictures. This is the real Gidget, Kathy Coner, and there she is with her father who wrote a book called Gidget, which uh, the subtitle is A Little Girl with Big Ideas. And of course she took over the world. You know, very famous, almost as famous, here's another famous L.A. woman, uh, Patty robbing a bank. And um, here's a surfer god, Mickey Dora. His real name was Miklos. He was an immigrant, just like Frederick Kohner. Um, here he is, you know, imitating Jesus with surfboards. Um, this is Cleo. And this is uh, Marie Provost, a Max Senate bathing beauty, who died in this Hollywood apartment building uh, around 40 of alcoholism and, and eating disorder. So, um, all right, Taliban beach party. We threw one at Dockweiler with costumes borrowed from studios or sewn in shops, three fruging ululating burkaettes, backed up befezed purple tuxed MC Dan at the mic as he called the wrestling match. In this corner, he bellowed, weighing 290 all-American pounds and towering tall at five feet and nine inches. Give it up. Cheers for Sandra D. Played by David, the hairy leather man, wearing a yellow polka dot bikini, blonde wig, and seaweed wreath on surfboard laid. And in this corner, booze, tipping the scales of injustice at just 99 pounds and standing six evil feet. O-B-L. In camo, fake beard, and turban, Nora, the emo junkie drummer for Waxy Snatch. Nora raised a Quran above her head and hollered. David flirtily giggled. Place your bets and get ready to rumble. Good and evil fought. Nora bit the sand, and I, as Jesus, passed out some tuna sandwiches. I glanced over to Sharon, as Patty in trench coat and beret, who simply pointed me with her Uzi to the fireworks and booze, because jumbo jets pushing off from LAX swept so low above our heads that we could see the grime that streaked their bellies but never be heard. But Mullamix Master tried, with Dick Dale's reverberating wails turned up to ten, while in celebration of Gidget's win, we barked in tiki and fed our bonfire, pallets, and fireworks so the big kahuna would see it burn so high that he would sing our praises to the planet's satellites. Diddles the clown sang naked by the fire, everybody's earth, the birds were, <laughs> before walking into the dark to give his bushmills back to our mother of the sea. As the fire died, I sat with Marshmallow beside Cleo, who named between takeoffs great towns like Budapest and Teplice that Mickey Dora and Frederick Kohner, upon visions of a summer day well spent, left to build a new kingdom on the coast. They sin, and I'll sin. They fly, and I'll fly. To us natives, it was naivete. What they made was just a fantasy land to those who grew up here for a career in continuity for Illusion, Inc. We knew different, thought we knew better, because the mighty Wurlitzer's last riff is death in a crappy Hollywood apartment with empty bourbon bottles on unpaid bills around the sink, a hungry yappy Pekingese scratching the door all damn day. Cleo was boring, so I looked away. Saw a, fig uh, saw a figure veiled in shadow, 
It could have been the ghost of Marie Provost, but whoever it was did not speak, so I turned back again to look at embers in the fire pit when the boiling amber in a pine cone burst into a cloud of sparks that burned as long as any victory cry. Thank you. What shall I do now? So, thank you very much for your uh, attention this afternoon. And uh, if you're interested in more information about Writers at Work, I have a bright yellow flyer. Come see me. Uh, I know that the poets with books would be more than happy to sign them for you, but you have to buy them first. <laughs> and... Um, you know, once again, thank you to Skylight. Um, and, you know, let's uh, see what the next 20 years will bring. So uh, please uh, help me give a round of applause to all the readers this afternoon. And happy National Poetry Month. And of course, we have to applaud Terry. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.